0: Okay, well it's been a couple of weeks since I was in the pulpit and I had to actually go back and listen to the recording of my sermon to remember where I was because I haven't been following my normal schedule because the Lord has changed my schedule. Uh, but to remind you, two weeks ago we talked about Isaiah chapter 63 and it was Isaiah 63 verses 1 through 6. And if you remember correctly, we talked about this guy that had red clothes, who was dressed in beautiful splendor, and he was splattered with blood as if he had treaded a wine press. And I showed you out of the book of Revelation that that was talking about the Messiah Jesus, and that he was going to take vengeance on the people who were not from God. Um, and then the very next section in this, verses seven through nineteen in verse, chapter sixty-three are actually a prayer that continue all the way through chapter 64. So from chapter 63, verse 7, all the way through to chapter 64, verse 12, is one long prayer. Now, before we begin looking at that prayer, I want to read to you. some. this is one of the uh, uh, eight or nine commentaries that I purchased when I first Got uh, started with this Isaiah study. This was written by a guy named Motyer, M O T Y E R. It's simply titled Isaiah. Um, it's it's a commentary, and it's it's I love it. It's one of my favorites of all the commentaries I have. But as I was reading about this passage, this section, this morning, um, that I mean, are going to talk about this morning, I I came across this this paragraph that I wanted to. I wanted to share with you because it spoke such volumes to me and I can't say it any better than he could say it, so it's better to just say it using his words. He wrote, in Isaiah chapter 62 verse 6, the anointed one, zealous for the realization of the worldwide glory of Zion, posted watchmen, intercessors, to pray Till all was fulfilled. Let's go ahead and turn there. Just turn back to Isaiah 62. Verse 6. It says. On your walls O Jerusalem. I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance. Take no rest. And then it continues in verse 7. And give him no rest. Until he establishes Jerusalem. And makes it a praise in the earth. Who were these watchmen? Do you remember? <laughs> intercessors, exactly. The watchmen that God placed on the wall were intercessors. And what are intercessors' job? What is their job? To, to intercede, to pray. Okay? And so now, Matyar is referring us back to that verse when he says, now as we're coming into this prayer, I want to refer us back to that idea that God has placed Intercessors or watchmen on the wall. They are described, he says. They are described in that verse as "you who call on the Lord." That literally means "you who keep the Lord in remembrance." The same word in that verse is is now occurring here in chapter sixty-three, verse seven. Instead, though, it's a singular word instead of a plural word. It says, I will keep someone in remembrance. Here is the watchman intercessor at his task. Typically of Bible prayers, excuse me, Bible prayers, the remembrancer begins by telling God about God before turning to the intercession. So, I, I was intrigued by that. Because I had read this verse this a number of times before I read Motyer, and I'd actually read a number of other things before I read Motyer's commentary. But he was the only one that said these words, and they just gripped my soul. God calls out intercessors. He expects intercessors to join him in the work and to pray for. But the thing that was so ironic, I was reading this one this morning at about six in the morning in my office because I had start, I had a crazy busy week, if you didn't know. And so I didn't start my sermon preparation until last night around nine o'clock or so. And then I went to bed and got up early this morning so that I could continue reading uh, in the, through the commentaries. And when I got to my office this morning at six o'clock, I read Mottier first. And then as I was studying and thinking about this idea of the intercessor and this section of scripture being a prayer of an intercessor, I get a text message, or actually a message from a friend of mine named, well, we won't mention her name because this is being recorded, but we already prayed for her today, so you know who I'm talking about, okay? We've been praying for her because she's struggling and because she has a lot on her plate and she needs someone to come alongside her. And you know what was so crazy? I got that message this morning, boop, on my screen while I'm trying to read all of this stuff and while I'm trying to type my notes. And the Lord said, Hello? Hello? Watchman on the wall? Here's somebody on the horizon going, Help me! Don't you think it would be appropriate for you to stop what you're doing right now and to intercede for her? Hmm? Watchman? Watchman? And I was like, oh, "This is so inconvenient. I'm trying to work here." Okay, I'll intercede. I bless her, Lord, help her. And Jesus literally said, "That's the best you got." <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I. Uh, He said, Bob, I've given you plenty of examples in the Bible how to pray. If you don't know how to pray, just read one of them. (laughs) Oh, okay. And then I finally got into my praying for this person and I was successful and felt like I completed what I was supposed to do and then I went back to my work. But God kind of gave me a slap upside the head and said, what do you mean you don't know how to pray for somebody? if you're an intercessor, which is who I'm supposed to be, I'm a pastor for heaven's sakes, I need to do more than just say, oh, bless her Lord. Bless her heart. Just keep her... And so it's like, God, is there a formula? There's not necessarily a formula, but isn't it interesting when... Well, let's take it out out of this intercession thing. If you go to the New Testament, doesn't it say... That's no, not even in the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament that the women are supposed to train up the young girls, and the men are supposed to train up the young guys, so that you impart to them the wisdom that you receive from the people who are above you, and so you continue on. And so, is it? And so, it, you would align yourself, especially in that culture, but even in our culture, you align yourself with someone who knows what they're doing, so that they can learn. You can learn from them. Okay. Regardless of what the activity is, whether it's a craft or whether it's finances or whether it's um, speaking or whatever, you you sit down with somebody who knows better than you or has more experience than you, and you learn from them. Well, it's not all that easy to find experienced intercessors. Quite honestly, there are people who are intercessors, but they are usually in the background. They're not up in the front. They're the ones that spend the wee hours of the morning crying out before God and then they came in late to Sunday school because they were sleeping because they were tired. And you think they're not even holy. Okay? So what God said to me was, Bob, as you're looking at these verses this morning, this is an outline of what a real intercessor does. Look at it. Look at some of the components and see what you can find here so that you can find a better and easier way to cry out to me when someone says, I need help and you want to intercede on their behalf. So let's learn from a master intercessor, Isaiah, who was interceding for people 250 years before they were born. Verse 7, chapter 63. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, According to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness of the house of Israel that He had granted them according to His compassion, according to the abundance of His steadfast love. For He said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And He became their Savior. In all their affliction He was afflicted. The angel of His presence saved them. And in His love and in His pity He redeemed them. And He lifted them up and He carried them all the days of old. Now, before we go any farther, who is the intercessor talking to? Talking to God, right? Yeah. If he's praying, he's talking to God. If he's preaching, he's talking to the people. So this intercessor, Isaiah, is praying to God. So why is he telling God what God already knows? Right? Huh? Right. Bringing to God's remembrance. What an interesting concept. And know that I remember. If you go through the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, you'll see over and over and over again where they relate back. And it's, and it is, it is reminding God and it is also acknowledging and reminding ourselves. And it is also for those who are in the congregation who may not have ever heard that story before. So, so publicly speaking out what God has done for you, through you, with you, is a way to communicate to God, bringing glory to Him, acknowledging Him, and also encouraging you in building up your own faith and helping someone who's coming alongside you. So, when you start praying, at least according to this guy, talk to God about what He's done in the past. Refresh your memory about what God's done in the past, which encourages you and strengthens you and emboldens you to come before Him. Verse 10, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. There's a lot there, but we don't have time to stop. Then he remembered the days of old. This is the prophet preaching, speaking to God, saying, God remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them out of the sea? With the shepherds of his flock. Where is he who put in the midst of them. His Holy Spirit. Who caused his glorious arm. To go at the right hand of Moses. Who divided the waters before them. To make for himself an everlasting name. Who led them through the desert. Through the depths. Like a horse in the desert. They didn't stumble. Like livestock that go down to the valley. The Spirit of God gave them rest. So you led your people. To make yourself a glorious name. And again this is. This is the prophet praying and and saying to God, remember all the times that you came and you saved your people. Even when they rebelled, you saved your people. Even when they weren't faithful. Even though, um, and, and even when you became their enemy, you still came and rescued them. Now, think about who Isaiah was writing this prayer for. He was writing this prayer for someone who needed a prayer 250 years from now when they were in exile and they had lost everything. Their land, their home, their temple and they felt despondent and what Isaiah was saying in his prayer was God, even when they rebelled against you and you became their enemy you still came and rescued them because that's who you are. Verse 15, look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation, where are your zeal and your might, the stirrings of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father. Though Abraham doesn't know us and Israel doesn't know us, doesn't acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden Our hearts so that we can fear you not. Return for the sake of your servants. The tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled. Like those who were not called by your name. Oh that you would rend the heavens and come down. That the mountains might quake at your presence. As when the fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From an old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet Him joyfully who works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were, ima- you were angry and we sinned. In, your, in our sins we have been a long time. Shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us. You've made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord. And remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please, look. We are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned with fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Breaking this apart, we've already looked at the fact that he was remembering and and helping God to remember what God has done in the past. They acknowledged that even though God was right there with them, they still rebelled against Him to the point where God literally became their enemy. And then they pled for mercy. Verses 15 through 19. You are our father. Even though we don't even get acknowledged by Abraham or Israel. We can't prove our lineage anymore. But you're still our father. You're our redeemer. Please. Why do you make us wander from your ways. And harden our hearts that we not fear you. Return for the sake of your servants. Oh that you would rend the heavens. There's there's a transition there, pleading for mercy, then acknowledging His power, acknowledging that there is no god like Him. See, it's back and forth. You've done mighty and powerful things. We have sinned. You are still great. You still love us. You still re- re- you've still reached out to us in the past. You've done these things for us. God, have mercy on us. God, show your strength. Show your power. And then finally, and there's a and then in that sense, there in that in that verses of, that are in 16, I mean, excuse me, in, in the first verses of 64, there is this lament. There's this sense of of we've sinned. Our sins have become like like we're like unclean. Our deeds are we're like we're like filthy. This idea of polluted garment. I don't want to be gross, but think about what would be a filthy, polluted garment in ancient Israel. Once a month. Okay? That's what they're talking about here. We're just, everything about us is bad, God. And then, but verse 8. You're our Father. And we are the clay to you, the potter. We do submit to you. We do say to you, Do whatever is necessary for me to be, to bring glory to you. Don't remember my iniquity forever. And come back. Come back. And do what you've done in the past, God. Now see, this is, this is somebody's prayer. The thing that's amazing to me is he's talking about destruction of Jerusalem 250 years before it happened but that's that's not the point for this morning. This morning is there are components here that every every one of us when we pray for we acknowledge God. We admit we admit we confess our sins. We ask him to forgive us our sins. We we cry out to him whatever the lament is. Help us. Be with us. Overcome that issue that I'm facing right now. And then go back to reminding him, God, You, I know you have the strength. I know you have the power. And then finally, and I submit myself to you and your authority. Whatever it is that you want, whatever it is that you need, I say, yes, Lord. That's a powerful intercessory prayer. Isaiah was praying on behalf of people 250 years down the road, who needed God desperately, who couldn't pray for themselves apparently. And so God gave them these words that they could at least recite, if nothing else. So what I say to you, number one, is if you are in a situation where you feel overwhelmed, where you feel like life has just dealt you a harsh blow that's beyond your ability to handle, pray this prayer. Change out some of the things that need to be changed out. Use your own examples of your own life where God has, I mean, take the time to write it out, where God has rescued you in the past, where, where you have sinned and turned your back on Him, where you have hardened your heart. Cry out your lament, whatever it is. It's not fair, God, I can't stand that this hurts. But l- don't leave it at that. Then bring it right back to you. But you are almighty and great and powerful and I submit myself to you. I declare that you are indeed my father, but I also declare that I will be clay in your hands and you, I will, I will not fight against whatever it is that you are bringing to me. But please don't forsake me. That's the last words here. Verse 12 of 64. Will you restrain yourself at these things, Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? That's a rhetorical question. God, I am trusting you to come to my rescue in this. Now, again, this is a wonderful prayer for somebody who's in pain if they can't pray for themselves, but it's also an empowered, a powerful, Holy Spirit-filled prayer that you can use to pray for someone who wouldn't normally pray for themselves because they aren't believers. Or who just are too weak in their faith to be able to get past it. Powerful, powerful words. One last thing that I want to focus on for just a second. Um, Compare 64-8. Put your finger in that page. Look at verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Now look at verse 17 in Isaiah 63. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways? and harden our heart so that we fear you not. Now, I have the English Standard Version. Does somebody have some other translation and it says it differently in verse 17? Why do you make us stray from our ways and make our minds stubborn, so that we not obey you? Why do you make us stray from our ways and, what is it? Make our minds stubborn so that we don't obey you. So why do you make us wander? Why do you make us wander? From, from your ways. From your ways. And harden our hearts so that we do not revere you. Harden our hearts so that we do not revere you. I struggled. This is something I tripped over and I've spent about an hour. And I, I, I'm confessing to you, I haven't spent eight hours this week. There's just There wasn't eight hours to spend. But I've spent about five hours this week. And an hour of it was on these two verses, just chewing on this and trying to think about this. If I say to God, "You're the potter and I'm the clay, whatever you want me to be, however you want me to be," I even went back and I read um, in Jeremiah the story of the potter, and I, I looked to see what was there to see if there was any anything I could bring into this. But the thing that I struggled with was this this statement that Isaiah is making in his inter, in his in his pleading with the Lord: "Why did you make us this way? Why did you make us this way?" And see, that, that comes into the idea, have you ever heard the term theophany? T-H-E-O-P-H-A-N-Y. Theophany. Have you heard of an epiphany? An epiphany is where BONG! The light goes on and God's present. You're, you're aware of God's being there. Or God reveals something to you. Theophany is the struggle of people to understand how a good God could allow evil. That's what theophany is. Okay, So, if I say in Isaiah 64, verse 8, God, you're the father and you're the potter. Everything that you say, I do. You guide my steps. You form me the way you want me to be formed. You are the one. If you go back to Psalms 139 that we read with the kids this morning. Lord, you know everything about me. You go before me, behind me. You've got your hand on me. You're always there with me. You know the words I'm about to speak. You know the thoughts that I'm thinking. You see it in the deepest, inner, innermost part of me. How in the world does a God like that allow us to harden our hearts against Him? And quite honestly, I don't have a solid answer because, oh my word, it's been 2,000 years and there's still people struggling with this. Okay? But this is the one answer that came to me. And that's the reason I loved the children's sermon that I found because it kind of touched on it. It wasn't what I was... I honestly didn't pick the children's sermon to go with this, but as it as it came to me, I went, oh, that's a perfect thing. God created each one of us for relationship with God. If we were robots if we had no choice but to be in relationship with God, it would not have satisfied what God wanted from us. If, and and this is what I was taught when I was a, a young Christian, and I honestly can't say that I see this in scripture, specifically pointing to a Bible verse, but it makes sense to me. If I were simply a mirror reflecting God's love back to God, It would satisfy something, but it wouldn't be the same as if I generated the love out of my own heart and offered it freely to God. It used to be years ago, when my wife and I were first married, that I had so much brokenness in me that I would expect her to know my need. And if she didn't meet my need, then she didn't love me. And we we had a lot of arguments about that. How can I know what I'm supposed to do if you never tell me? Well, if I tell you, then it doesn't mean anything. You should just do it because that's what I need. Well, that's stupid. But the reality is is that God wants us to love Him and He wants to be something that we generate from ourselves. So if God created humankind so that we would love God from our own being, offering it to Him freely as a gift, there had to be something called free will. Because if you don't have the freedom to choose to love or not love, all you're doing is reflecting as a mirror. It's not generated from yourself. So if you allow free will, then the sovereignty issue of God starts getting gray when it comes up against our free will. Is God indeed sovereign over absolutely every part of our world? Hmm, yes. But if that's the case, then He's the one that causes us to not love Him, right? Because if he's in charge of everything we do, then it becomes this circular vortex going into darkness that leads nowhere. Okay? And we're not going to resolve it in the next 15 minutes because it's been discussed for 2,000 plus years. It's very easy. Well, you pull the book out and show it to us. Okay? So there's this, there's this fuzziness that happens when you get into the area between God's sovereignty, God's providence, and the free will of human beings. And this prayer touches on that. Okay? Because Isaiah is saying, God, you are sovereign. You are the potter. I am the clay. Whatever you want. Mold me, make me. May mold me, shave me. Do whatever you want with me. I don't care if you make me a bed band. As long as I'm near you, that's all that matters. At the same time, why do you harden my heart? Why do you make me go against you? I mean, you're the one that made me like this. But see, if you didn't have the freedom to love you wouldn't have the freedom to reject. And that's where the problem comes in. So as you're interceding on behalf of someone, be aware of that. Oh God, move in this person's life and also deal with their self-will. Help them, Father, to not... And when you pray this prayer for somebody... When you get to verse 17 in, verse, in chapter 63, say, Lord, do not allow them to harden their heart. Do not make it easy for them to wander. Help them to come to a submission, a yieldedness in their life where they literally acknowledge you not only as a loving father, but as the one who shapes and guides and molds their lives. See, that's, that's a very hard prayer to pray. Because there's this there's this there's this tension that goes on between sovereignty and free will. But if you're praying for someone, you need to acknowledge that they're both present. And you need to just pray that God would, in His sovereignty, allow them to reject Him, but pray against that rejection. You know what I'm saying? It's really... It's it's weird. And it took me an hour just to come to this little bit that's still fuzzy. I've I've been actually I've been dealing with thought sovereignty, providence, and free will for about oh seven or eight years in my own personal stuff. Ever since I started my master's degree in spiritual formation. And it came it came up in one of my studies, and I was like, oh. And I've been wrestling with this now for seven years. I still don't have this is the closest I've ever come to preaching on this. So I wanted to share with you this morning these two things. This is the two things that God showed me in my study. Number one, we're called to intercede on, the, on behalf of other people. And it's more than just, oh, look, oh, bless them, Lord. Bless their heart, Lord. You need to get on your face before God. And you need to dig in and pray for those people. If indeed you're being called. Or don't say, I'll pray for you. Because you ain't. Either way, don't make a promise if you're not going to do it. If you are going to do it, do it right. Number two, recognize that no matter how much you pray for this person, they still have the freedom to walk. They still have the freedom to say, oh, I don't want that. I, I've shared with you guys in the past, I think, if I haven't, I'm going to share with you now. I was dealing with somebody in the last moments of their life. And I, I came to them and I said, you know, I'm a pastor. And, you know, three or four months ago, we talked about your eternal destiny we talked about the fact that God loves you and Jesus is the only way and you know you're literally in the last moments of your life. Are you ready now to make a decision? And I had to step back and say, I love you and I will be here for your family when you're gone. I don't understand that, but I know that it's real. I know that it's true because the Bible tells us there are people that do that. If you look at Romans chapter 1 verse 28, I think it is, talks about the fact that they've hardened their heart to the point where God just lets them have their own way. It's this idea that God said in verse 60, in chapter 63 verse, uh, 10, they rebelled and they grieved God's Holy Spirit, so He turned them over, so He turned to be their enemy. And he himself fought against him. Because God said, this is the standard. This is what is expected. I will love you. I will pour out blessings on you. But this is the line. You must cross this line. You're not willing to cross the line? That's your business. But the line ain't moving. If you're not willing, do whatever you want. Go gather with other like-minded people. Make yourselves feel comfortable because this is the last bit of comfort you're going to have. This is the line. And we need to be praying for people to get past that. To get past their free will. But at the same time, recognize that it's still their choice. And that's hard. That's very hard. So, enough said. Jesus, I ask that you would bless us as we seek to bless the people around us. If indeed you are calling us to be intercessors, I pray that you would help us to be faithful to that calling. That we would get on our faces before you and not just simply say a glib little two-second prayer, but that we would cry out before you on behalf of the one who cannot or the one who needs shoring up. And so, Father God, I pray that even these words of Isaiah would be available to us when nothing else is available. That we could at least use this as an outline of how we could pray for the person that you're calling us to pray for. And then then finally Lord, as we're doing all of this, help us to remember and recognize you are indeed sovereign, but you've given every human being the freedom to say no. And as sad as that is, they still have that freedom. But even so, we should continue to pray for them up until the very last moment because who knows what your Holy Spirit will do in their heart and in their mind. Bless us, Lord. Go with us now, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.